I heard a story, some of you who are a little bit older can probably appreciate this better, but the point still can be understood. But I heard a story about a little boy who was going around collecting glass bottles to raise some, some money. And so he went to one lady's house who everybody in the neighborhood knew was just the town grouch, the neighborhood grouch. And so he went up to her door and he was, you know, brave and knocked on the door. She came to the door and he said, excuse me, ma'am, do you have any old Coke bottles? And she just said, no. And so he said, well, do you have any old whiskey bottles? And, and it just turned into a scowl at that point. She said, what would make you think that I have old whiskey bottles in my house? And so he looked her over and thought for a second. He said, well, do you have any old vinegar bottles? You see, we all understand the principle that when life collides with you, what you're full of is going to spill out, right? Whether it's peace or love or worry or hate or anger or bitterness, patience, whatever it may be, when life collides with you, what is in you is going to spill out. So in light of our sermon series, the question I have for you, at least we'll start off today with, is why doesn't the Holy Spirit spill out more in our lives as Christians? Perhaps it's because a lot of us have received a gift from Jesus that we still have yet to unwrap and open. We are in the midst of a series, actually we're in the second week of a series called The Gift of the Holy Spirit, and the title really sums up the subject matter that we're talking about. We are diving into what is this gift, this incredible gift that God has given to us in the form of the Holy Spirit. And as I said last week, there is absolutely no way that I can answer everything there is to know and learn about the Holy Spirit in a series Even if it lasted until the end of time, we're not going to do that because the Holy Spirit is God, as we talked about last week. And to fully encompass and to to, to fully grasp who God is would diminish who God actually is. And so we, we can't fully grasp it, but hopefully what is said and what is learned will help us to better understand the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and hopefully to encourage us and better equip us to walk better with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm sure all of us, All of you in this room, at one point or another, I'm guessing, have either given or received a gift card, or at least you know what it is and you know the the reality of it, to a department store or uh, your favorite restaurant. Do you know why retailers love gift cards so very much? Because we're terrible at redeeming them. A recent study showed that almost half of Americans— And it may not sound like a lot, but you start parsing out the number. At least half of Americans, one in every two Americans, has at least one gift card that has been unredeemed. That may not blow your mind, but this number will. The overall amount of unused money on gift cards in America has a total value of around $23 billion. That's billion with a B. We have received the gift... And yet, we haven't experienced the blessing of the gift. And as we saw last week, Jesus has given us the best gift ever, the gift of the Holy Spirit for us as Christians. You will never get a better gift than the gift of God's presence. But have you experienced the blessing of the gift? So it's the night before Jesus is about to go to the cross, and his disciples are with him, and he's asked them to leave everything to follow him. And they have. But now he's telling them that he's going to leave them. Ten times in three chapters, he says, I'm going to leave you. 
I'm, 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 go- I'm not going to be here much longer. I'm going to leave you. And so naturally, they're sad. They're confused. They're trying to wrap their minds around what is going on. But Jesus knows something they don't know. He says, it's really better that I leave because I'm going to give you something that is so much better than you could ever imagine. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So John chapter 14, every week in this series, we're going to start out, launch out of John 14 through 16, one of the passages in in those three chapters. And again, I've encouraged you to read those three chapters before we get together. Hopefully God will move your heart and your mind to, to prepare you and also maybe do some other things throughout the week. So I would encourage you to read John chapter 14 through 16. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, that's a good place to start. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. That's a sermon in and of itself. But if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, and listen to this next part, for he lives with you and will be in you. What we just read is perhaps one of the most anticipated promises in all of Scripture. And yet, I just wonder if it's one that we probably don't celebrate nearly as much as we should. You see, it has been God's desire from the very beginning to dwell intimately with his children. God's great goal is not salvation. You probably wonder that. In your notes, it says God's great goal is It's not salvation. God's great goal, salvation is the means to that. God's great goal is fellowship. God desires to have fellowship with you and me and all of his creation, all of his created creation. What God has always wanted is is to dwell in uninhibited fellowship with his children. Now, the Bible says at the very beginning he did. The Bible also says at the very end he will again. Before sin entered the picture and after sin is removed from the picture, God is going to have his heart's desire, intimate fellowship with his children. But right now, how does a holy God dwell with, fellowship with, unholy people? And you see this tension all throughout the Old Testament because the metaphors for God in the Old Testament all communicate that God, being that he is holy, is almost unapproachable. Like, like he, he's so holy that you can't go near him. You can't be in his presence and not, for lack of better words, die, right? One of the most prominent metaphors is fire. And we understand kind of the, the nature of fire, right? It, it's, it's beautiful. It can be beautiful. It can also be, right, if you get too close, you can get burned. And so you read this metaphor of God and, and or metaphor of God is, is fire. In Exodus chapter 19, when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, it says that the Lord descended on the mountain in fire, and the people are afraid, and they should be. In Exodus chapter 13, after the Israelites leave Egyptian bondage, they leave the, the country of Egypt, and they're traveling, and God is in front of them. He's leading them in a pillar of fire. There's a story of Elijah in First uh, Kings chapter 18 when fire descends from heaven. I'm not going to go through the whole story because it's kind of long. But fire descends from heaven and consumes the entire altar, the entire sacrifice that is there. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, after Solomon builds the temple, he's dedicating the temple to God. He's built it. Now he's dedicating it to God. 
prays for God's presence to come onto the temple and onto the people. And it says that fire came down out of heaven and the glory of the Lord filled the place with such intensity that nobody could enter in it. So they built this temple for God. Hey, we're going to worship God here. He calls, God comes down, his presence comes down and no one can go in it because that's, that's the reality of the presence of God. And God enters into the room called the Holy of Holies. This veil is put up because you cannot go in there. It's not safe for unholy people to go into the presence of a holy God. Now, you do have times in the New Testament where the Spirit of God will visit a person, but hardly ever remain because people keep choosing sinning over dwelling. And so in the Old Testament, you have visitation, but you don't have habitation until Jesus And he promises something completely different. He says he has been with you and he will be in you. Now, how could Jesus make a promise that bold about God? Well, because of what he's going to do the very next day that he makes that promise. He goes to the cross and he dies on that cross. And when he dies, the veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And presence, access to holy God is opened up through the death of Jesus. And in going to the cross, Jesus cleanses us. He washes us with his blood. He imparts his perfect righteousness onto us. And by his death and resurrection, he makes you and me fit temples for the presence of a holy God. And I just said something that is probably went right over our heads. And if you actually think about what that is, will blow your mind. God has cleansed you to be a temple for him. Jesus said, it's better that I go away because what I'm going to do at that cross and what I'm going to do when I come out of that grave is I'm going to prepare you to be pure enough to have intimate fellowship with God. He is with you and he will be in you. So when did that happen? Well, there's about 120 of them together followers of Jesus. Acts chapter 1 tells us that. They're praying. They're waiting on Jesus, just like he's told them to do. And it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, and everyone would have known what that symbol was. They separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. You know what's interesting? I was thinking about that, th- this, this reality, the last couple of weeks. It's interesting. We celebrate pro- probably the two most um, special times or, or, or most um, significant times on, on our calendar, usually in the church we think about, are one, we celebrate Christmas, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Beautiful imagery when Jesus comes into this world. And we celebrate Good Friday and we celebrate Easter and the cross and the resurrection. God is for us. And yet, do you hear and do you see what Pentecost is saying to us? That the God who is with us and the God who is for us is now the God who is in us. What a beautiful picture. That the anointed one, because that's what Christ means, The anointed one, by virtue of our union with his death and resurrection, is giving us his anointing. That the best gift Jesus has given us, as beautiful as this gift is, this is not the best gift that he's given to us. 
That the the most precious gift that God has given to us is not simply a set of, of doctrine or a book, but it is literally the indwelling presence of God. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. And this was one of the main points of the first gospel sermon. You read the first gospel sermon, this is one of the main points that Peter makes when he gives that first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter doesn't say, hey, Jesus is about to take us all to heaven. He says Jesus is sending heaven to us. And he closes the sermon like this in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And what happens when your sins are forgiven? You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I love this next part too. And the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is not just some gift that will only be available for a select few that only a select few can receive. No, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ and you've been buried with him in baptism, if you are saved, then you have received the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because you see, God never wanted to dwell in houses of wood and stone. He has always longed to dwell in houses of flesh and bone. And every Christian is basically a walking temple of God. And yet, it takes us back to the very first question. If that's the case, then why isn't the Holy Spirit spilling out all over the place? And I can't help but wonder if it's because there's too often a disconnect between dwelling and filling. Again, if you are a Christian and you've been washed in the blood of Jesus and you have been baptized into him, then you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the reality for every single one of us who is Christians. If you're not a Christian this morning, then that doesn't apply to you. Doesn't mean the Holy Spirit isn't isn't working and that God isn't working. I'm just saying you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But if you are a Christian, you do. That's why there is no command. You will not see a command in the Bible to go get the Holy Spirit. You will see a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but you will not see a command to go get the Holy Spirit. You will see a command for us to let the Holy Spirit have full reign of the house that is our bodies and our lives. You're not commanded to go get it, but you are commanded to be filled with it. So Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with with the Holy Spirit. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, earlier in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul told that same church, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other, in other words, you, you've been given, you, you, that's the mark that you're a Christian. That, that's the seal that you are a Christian. You've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he's telling people who already have the Holy Spirit that they need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the indwelling of the Spirit does not guarantee the filling of the Spirit. Because people and circumstances and sin and sometimes just surviving life can drain your filling, amen? To be filled with means to be under control. You're under the influence. It's interesting that Paul contrasts it with being drunk. When you're drunk, you're under the influence of another agent, right? 
in essence, you are out of control. You, you are relinquishing that control, whether you do it voluntarily or involuntarily, you are doing it in those moments. That is the reality. You are out of control in a negative way. And the same is true from a positive aspect. When you are filled with the Spirit, when you are under the control of the Spirit and He is leading your life, and as opposed to ruining your life, which drunkenness and a lot of other things can do, being filled with the Spirit will lead to the best life you could possibly live. And so Jesus says, I have given you this gift, but I want you to experience the fullness of all that I'm offering to you. Because here's the reality. If you are a Christian, you have been given the gift but that does not mean that you are experiencing the blessing. There's a story in Acts chapter 6 where they're having a problem with some widows who are in need and distributing food and making sure everybody's taken care of. And so the apostles at this time say, we've, we've, got, some, we, we've got to take care of this stuff. We've got to take care of, it's not that one is more important than the other, but we're going to, we're going to spend time on, on ministry and, and the word and, and the spiritual aspect of things. We need some other men to take care of this other aspect. Literally, they say, go pick some men who are full of the Holy Spirit and let them take care of it. Now, there's, a more, there's more than a few things going on in this passage, and we're not going to talk about all of them, but the reason I bring up this story is that it's interesting that they say, pick some men who are full of the Holy Spirit, which implies that there were some who weren't. So find the ones who are. So what about us? Are we living, experiencing the reality of the presence of God? Or are we still waiting to unwrap the gift? Paul says, be filled. It's an interesting verb. First of all, it's not a suggestion, okay? It is a command. It's not like, well, if you want to, be nice if you were. No, it is a command. So being filled, being filled, there's my southern roots, being filled is a matter of obedience. It's a plural verb, which means it's for everybody, not just for some. It's also present tense, which means it is meant to be continually done. In other words, you can't live today on yesterday or last week's filling. It is something that ought to be continually done. You have to be constantly renewing and refreshing yourself in the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Jesus has sent us this gift to help us and the Holy Spirit will not make you weird. He will help you to live like and love like Jesus. And one thing I've noticed is that people who are full of the Spirit don't need to tell you they're full of the Spirit. Right? You just see it. They're thankful people. They're peaceful people. They're graceful people. And when life collides with them, the character of Jesus spills out. So one little girl left church, and she said, Mama, I'm having a hard time understanding what the preacher said in his sermon. And her mom said, well, how, why is that, honey? And she said, well, the preacher said that God is bigger than us. Is that right? And Mama said, yes, that's, that's right. And the little girl said, well, the preacher also said that God lives in us. Is that right? And Mama said, yeah, that's right, too. And she said, well, Mom, if God is bigger than us and God lives in us, then wouldn't God show through? That's pretty good theology, I think. And so today, perhaps the best way for an unbeliever to encounter the living God is not to simply walk into a temple, but it is to encounter and meet walking temples of the Spirit 
of God in whom the Spirit is overflowing and spilling out into the world around us. And yet, sadly, we've got too many temples out there that aren't full. Because you see, just because the Holy Spirit is imminent does not mean that he is preeminent in our lives. And I can't decide which truth is more stunning. The truth that God has sovereignly chosen to place his spirit in me or the stunning truth that he then gives me the choice to decide whether or not I will allow the release of his spirit in my life. Isn't that nuts? It's up to me and my will if I'm going to access this gift and give the spirit full reign in my life or not. And sadly, many of us have rooms in the house where the Holy Spirit is just locked out. You can't go in there, Holy Spirit. You see, this is not a knowledge problem. This is a surrender problem. Because we all want to be in control. We like to lead far more than we like to be led. And so we have places in our lives where we said to God's Spirit, yeah, that room's off limits, Holy Spirit. I'm going to hold on to that room. You can have this room. You can have like the, the walk-in, the mud room, you know, but I'm going to save this room back here. I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. And I love the way the New Living Translation puts it, verse 25. He says, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. You see, you can't have too much of God in your life. And Paul is saying, I want God's spirit and God's presence to be in every corner, in every crevice of my life because the Holy Spirit is God and God is good and the Holy Spirit is good. I don't want just a little bit. I want full takeover. Because you see, there should be a noticeable difference, a tangible, observable difference in a person in whom the Spirit of God lives and a person in whom the Spirit of God does not live. We were called to live supernatural lives. We should be living lives that are simply not possible apart from the Spirit of God because the flesh can't produce that kind of life. As I said last week, there's some things we can do. We can, we can live and we can love, but we can't live and love like Jesus without the Spirit. I want to live in such a way, and I'm not there, but I want to live in such a way that you can't explain me except to give glory to God. But to do that, I have to let the Holy Spirit have the whole house, not just a guest room. So let me talk to two different groups as we kind of wrap things up this morning. Let me first talk to those who in whom the Spirit of God does not live. The Spirit of God does not, and I'm not trying to be mean about this, but if you are not a Christian, the Spirit of God does not live in you because you are not a fit temple. Let me say that again. You are not a fit temple for Jesus, for God. The only way you can get fit is through Jesus. That's it. Through his blood, through what he did for us on the cross. If he cleanses you, that is the only way and so you need to come and claim Jesus as Savior. Agree with who he said he is, that he is the Son of God, and identify with him through baptism, through his death and resurrection. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't accepted Jesus, what better day than today? What better day than today? Now let me talk to those of us 
who are Christians, who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this question. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and only you can answer this question, is there a noticeable difference in your life as compared to someone who does not have the Spirit living in them? There ought to be. There ought to be. And if there's not, the answer is no, then perhaps you haven't opened the gift that God has given to you. And listen, the key is not to be, it's not to feel guilty or to, or to try harder. That's not the key. That verb, to be filled, it's a command, but it's also passive. It's not something you do. It's something God does to you. He fills you with his spirit when you surrender, when you let go of control and give it to him. When you get honest before God and you say, okay, God, that room where all the lust lives, I haven't let you in, but I, today I will. I am t- starting today. That room where all the bitterness lives, that room where all the, the anger lives, that room where all the worry lives, I give you the key. And you surrender. And you repent. And the beautiful thing is God is eager to do what is best for his children. So if you're a Christian, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The question I leave you with today is this. Does the Holy Spirit have you? 